This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast, I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, joined today with the host, uh, creator, and just overall super interesting person, friend of our show for sure, Laura Krantz. Laura is the host of the Wild Things Podcast, which you can find at wildthingpodcast.com. Laura, so excited to have you on the show. I really just a huge fan of your work. I've listened to your podcast all the way through now um, since you actually reached out to us a, a pretty a while ago, I think. And oh, my goodness, it's like it's like the sister show to our show. I absolutely love it so much. Uh, do you want to give listeners a little bit of information about kind of your show and why you started it? Yeah, totally. So first of all, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And then the show really got its start probably back in 2016. Actually, if you want to go all the way back, it was 2006. Uh, And I found an article in the Washington Post when I was living and working in Washington, D.C. And it was talking about a guy named Grover Krantz, same last name, who had donated his bones and the bones of his dogs to the Smithsonian. And I immediately was like, wow, what a weirdo. That's really fascinating. I didn't know you could do that. So I read a little bit more about him. And then there's this throwaway paragraph towards the end of the article talking about how he had been this respected respected professor of anthropology and then would also drive around the Pacific Northwest looking for Sasquatch with a spotlight and a rifle. And I was immediately hooked and was like, who is this guy? Are we related? Turns out we are. He was my grandfather's cousin. And then I just kind of sat on that story for 10 years and I was working in public radio at the time. I'd, I had been at NPR and then I went to KPCC in Los Angeles and around 2014, I started to do some freelancing and I tried to do print and I was terrible at it. And I realized I missed radio and I realized I wanted to do a story about Grover and about his search for Bigfoot and about this science as it stands with that. And sort sure. of where it overlaps with society, which is essentially what the center of this whole podcast is. It's like where our questions about what's going on in the world butts up against um, the reality of the science. And that was the genesis for the whole podcast. I didn't know if there would be multiple seasons. Uh, there are. There are now three. But yeah, that's how this all got started. Yeah, it's really it's interesting sometimes how those sort of, you know, since we've done the show we always joke that I've never really had a paranormal experience that I say that I would say I can't explain, but synchronicities come up all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's so funny that you, you found this, this, I guess what he would be your second cousin once removed or something crazy yeah, like that. Or some, I, I never did figure that part out. So if yeah, anyone's an a very, expert. <laughs> right, a very tenuous, you know, whatever familial uh, link on through the tree, but it's really interesting. You know, it's, it's so interesting that your your newest season looks at nuclear energy in particular, which I think is something that if you asked people on the street, they would say at on the one hand, the nuclear energy is so vastly complicated and outside of the realm of something that a normal person kind of, you know, just walking around would know about. Mm-hmm. And yet it's something that everyone has, I think, a very strong opinion on. And it's one of those uncomfortable areas where science literacy and science knowledge butts up against public perception and politics and economics and, you know, sociology and everything. Exactly. And again, kind of those those interesting areas that our shows investigate. So what made you want to do nuclear energy? Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of it's a little bit of a jump from Bigfoot to uh, nuclear yeah. energy. Um, I, I have heard from a few fans about that being like, when are you going back to Bigfoot? Um, but For me, it really was about this question of the myths and the ideas we have about certain things that are happening, you know, in the scientific world, in the natural world. And again, the reality of that science. And 
What captured my interest, this was also something of a personal story in that I grew up in a town called Idaho Falls, which is in the southeastern corner of Idaho. And it's not that far from the Idaho National Laboratory, which back in the 1940s, 1950s was the National Reactor Testing Station. So this is where the government was like, we're going to figure out what the best kind of nuclear reactor is. And we're going to test a whole bunch of them and we're going to push them to their limits and we're going to see if we can blow stuff up, which they did. And sometimes they blew it up accidentally, not on purpose. And it was basically kind of the wild west of the nuclear age, like a free for all. And they were just trying to figure out what the best materials were, what the best fuels were, what the best designs were. And one of these reactors that the, that the army had built, uh, it was called SL-1, Stationary Low Power Reactor 1. It blew up in 1961 and it killed three men. And to this day, it is still the deadliest nuclear reactor accident in American history. And nobody knows about it or very few people know about it. The nuke nerds know about it for sure. And they call themselves that. That is not a name I have given them. Um, but I was fascinated because I had grown up in this town not all that far from the lab. My friend's parents worked at the lab. My dad had lived in that town since he was five. And I had never heard the story until I was an adult. So I found that particularly interesting. And then 60 years later, Idaho Falls is now potentially on the receiving end of nuclear power from sort of the next generation or the future of nuclear reactors. There's a company called New Scale that makes small modular reactors, and they're working with the Idaho National Laboratory to develop these new kinds of reactors, and Idaho Falls might get power from them. And so I just thought that was kind of an interesting bookend to our conversation about nuclear energy and our sort of national ambivalence, like what you're talking about, where on one hand, we're like terrified of it and the science seems really murky and we all have strong opinions about it, but we can't necessarily tell you what's going on inside a reactor. It's a fascinating historical piece of, it's just such an interesting, it's a local story, right? To where you grew up, right? but it's also this, again, part of a larger tapestry of, you know, America, we think of ourselves as very, cutting edge when it comes to technology but it's actually interesting the first story that got me interested in i guess what i would call like philosophy or maybe sociology of science i, I don't know what it is necessarily that we would call what these you know what our shows focus on but this study about you know why do some ideas get taken up by the public and others don't and why does some technology seem to lag was actually researching America was the last country to adopt the burning of coal initially. Really? Um, bef yeah, because we had so much wood that we had to switch over to it much later than Europe did. Mm -hmm. And so pre kind of the, you know, the, the creation of the modern day coal industry, the United States really pushed back against coal. And a lot of this, the same arguments you see made about you know, it's not safe. It ruins the environment. It's, you know, it can explode. It can all these other things were made about coal and coal reactors and steam engines. And, you know, the one thing we touch on all the time on the show, it's like our unofficial, uh, it's our unofficial catch line. I feel like is, mm -hmm. you know, conspiracy theory or pseudoscience doesn't really change. It just, all that changes is the window dressing, right? The arguments though stay the same. The feelings stay the same. So with nuclear energy, it's such an interesting, it's just, there's so much to dig your teeth into. So what, what would you say is your favorite? I mean, what, what's your favorite story you found so far? I mean, that's an amazing one you already told us yeah. right? about growing up in this town and, and having this, uh, having this link over to this scientific, again, I, I, what should be the, the major catastrophe for this technology that happened here, but we look at others, of course. So what, what else have you found? What's, a, what's kind of an interesting story I think you've dug into? Yeah, there are actually a bunch. And, you know, what was really fascinating for me was getting into the history of all of this because I didn't really have a good sense of, like, how we had come to the place where we are with nuclear energy. And, you know, getting that background, learning about how you back in, you know, 1930, in the 1930s when they kind of figured out how they were going to be able to get let me back up. Back in the 1930s, when they figured out they could get all that power out of the atom, um, that was sort of the first step. And then you get scientists figuring out, okay, 
here's how we do a chain reaction, which allows us to uh, sort of harness that power. And of course, that immediately gets put into the Manhattan Project and the creation of the atomic bomb, even though scientists at the time had been thinking about how can we use this energy for you know, powering our cities, things like that. So the Manhattan Project, all of this happens in secrecy. Nobody knows, the majority of Americans, the vast majority of Americans have no clue about this and no real knowledge of nuclear energy until August 6, 1945, when we dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, holy crap, uh, what is this? And then you get the second bomb. And then the government is kind of like, okay, now we're going to use this stuff for good. And I think there was a lot of people who were like, um, how? Like, there yeah. was, you know, no real understanding of the science. And they had just seen, like, this extreme destructive capability. And now they're supposed to just sort of, like, go along with atoms for peace and the idea of, like, trying to harness the energy inside the atom for good stuff. And, you know, we can do it. We can control it. It'll be fine. What could go wrong? And so that history initially really fascinated me because from the beginning, you have to try and separate nuclear energy from nuclear bombs. And that was very hard for people. And I think to this day, it has remained very difficult to people. And so there's all these echoes of history that just sort of keep coming back. And in some ways, you see these kind of things crop up again. You know, a lot of the people who remember the bombing, the bombings, um, the bombs dropped on Japan, they're, they're not all alive today, but a lot of people do remember Chernobyl. And so that in some ways has become a substitute for the atomic warfare in the, you know, here's what, here's how things can go wrong. Here's where the problems are. Here's why we need to avoid this stuff. Here's why we need to be cautious of it. And so fear is always very tightly tied to hope in, I think, this technology. It, it's so... The... Like you said, nuclear energy had a... It was like whiplash. Yeah. And I mean, you can imagine, right? If the first thing you use... You know, if the first thing they used the microwave for was to like explode somebody's head and then they were like, oh, but you can cook chicken. Yeah. You're like, like, you'd be like oh, my God, no. Chicken. No, thank you. Yeah. Like, oh, this is horrible. Vegetarian you know? for life. <laughs> right. Yeah. From now on. That's it. Yeah. Have you ever seen there's a it's actually interesting. There's an it's an anime, but and it's originally based on a it's based on a manga series called Barefoot Gen. And it's about I've heard the, of it. I haven't oh seen it. Oh, my God. It's so for listeners who have not seen it and it's I'll say it's graphic and it's pretty it's heavy. It's really heavy, but it talks about the bomb like it, it, it's from a point of view of a child who lived through the the bombing. Right, 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 right. And it is. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And so reading through, I mean, before you got on the show here, I went back through and read, you know, interviews with people who had been there and. You watch on YouTube interviews with with folks and they the interesting thing, I think, is that so many of them. So many of them talk about how they didn't realize anything really was wrong, mm -hmm. you know, until again, it's that same whiplash thing, I think, that even the public had of. You know, two minutes before the bomb dropped, we lived in a completely different world, right? Yeah. Than, than a moment after yeah. that, that that is such an interesting moment of of scientific change, technological change, bringing about, a, a, you know, a, I mean, a new, a, literally a new political order, a new way of thinking about geopolitics, a new way of thinking about economies. It was, it's wild. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't quite answer your question, but to go back to it, like you have this moment in like the fifties where they are trying to harness the power of the atomic bomb for peaceful uses. And there was a project called Project Plowshares, uh, which is literally from a Bible verse, turn our, our swords into plowshares. Yep. And they were using, I mean, well, they, they didn't get as far with this as I think they would have liked to if they hadn't had any sort of regulations or oversight. But there were plans to like drop bombs in Alaska to create a harbor up in sort of the northwest corner of Alaska. There were ideas to like bomb the Bristol Mountains in California and, you know, make room for the interstate. There were ideas to create a new Panama Canal or widen the existing one. All of these using nuclear weapons for quote unquote peaceful uses. But it's a little bit terrifying in some ways how fast and loose we were with this stuff, given that we didn't fully understand it. We'd really only been playing around with it for 
you know, since World War II, understanding the explosive capabilities of it. And this was fairly new technology that we were a little, um, a little sloppy with. Well, it's yeah, it's it's really interesting. The few. So we have never on our show done a full deep dive into nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've done it. Epi- we just did a series on time travel and I felt oh, like cool. we had to go to we had to go back to the beginning of physics, essentially. Right. And so I don't <laughs> want to go back to the beginning of chemistry to explain <laughs> nuclear energy, but we've done episodes on some of the more kind of pop science nuclear myths, right? So, you know, we talked about the use of uh, nuclear, like radium and other radioactive materials for things like makeup, Uh you know, and the the radium girls, right? So it really is an interesting story of, like you said, we're playing really fast and loose with this technology or with this science that we don't really understand. And I think it's created for the public almost like a almost a snapback effect where we were so fast and loose with it that now we're much more hesitant. I would say in general, or at least it appears to be much more hesitant to embrace new technologies, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. Cause I, you know, I, I don't know if that's actually true or not. I think it's just, again, I think it all comes down to, for me, at least I think it all comes down to economy. Right. And so, you know, what gets accepted is going to be technologies that are, that are good for the people, but also good for business. Right. right. And, and beforehand, you know, nuclear energy or nuclear science, there weren't many uses outside of outside of war. Right there. I mean, there really was no use outside of war. And that was the whole point of what they were trying to develop in the 50s. Like, what else can we do with this stuff? They knew that, like, if you could control that chain reaction and you could control the amount of energy that uh, was coming out in one given moment and prolong that, you had a tremendous amount of power there. Pound for pound, uranium and and Mm -hmm. um Nuclear reactor fuels are generally, I mean, they're just so much more efficient than coal, oil, gas. You don't have to constantly be resupplying your power plant or your navy, your your army base up in the Arctic or or things like that. So there were obvious and amazing uses, um, but I think sometimes we were so excited about the possibility that we may not have taken all of the precautions that were necessary. And you know, I would I would argue that we kind of still do this a little bit. Like I'm thinking, for instance, of like the internet, this was going to bring the world together. We were all going to be one big happy family. Um, that hasn't maybe worked out the way people planned. It's like the opposite, man. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very, you know, predicting the few predict the prediction business is not very well, <laughs> right? Not, not a very and safe I one to be. I think in. it's optimistic, which, you know, to be fair, I would rather live in an optimistic society than one that's like, you know, everything is doom and gloom and disaster. But I think, I think sometimes we give human nature and humans more credit than they deserve. I, I, I think I would agree with you in general there. Yeah. It's if one of the, one of the aspects about, nuclear energy in particular and like what you just said right of giving people the benefit of the doubt Hmm. thinking that people would do the best that they could with this one of the one of my favorite things about nuclear energy and just the nuclear transition in general was you had of course people you know i am become death the destroyer of worlds and this you know oh my god this is gonna you know we're gonna Russia and us, we're going to nuke each other to death and the end of civilization, everything else. Right. But then you also have this growth almost of technological utopianism. Yes. And so you see things like, you know, um, I think my favorite instance of this actually in the modern day is the, is the Fallout video game series. I have friends who love that game. It's really good. It's basically this idea the the basic premise is... Imagine if the like Project Plowshare had had kind of worked. Uh-huh. So we started using nuclear energy for all these other things. And then eventually it all goes bad in China. You know, we, we nuke China, they nuke us and it, you know, it all goes to hell. Right. But in the game, you see these things like, you know, they have they have cars that are powered by mini nuclear reactors and they have <laughs> jetpacks. And they yeah. have, all these, you know, all this amazing technology. They have robots. And it's this, you know, it, again, that promise of boundless energy is it, it is we're so close to utopian, you know, tech technological worldview and whatever, but we use it to to blow each other up. <laughs> it's a very interesting human, just a very human experience. Yes, that is a, a very good way to put it. 
But so have you, I guess, one of the so I, I want to ask you, I want to go through your favorite kind of nuclear mythology if you have one. So for me, it's definitely like Attack of the 300 foot tomato. Oh. <laughs> I love those kind of stories, right? Yeah. You know, so, you know, an ant gets into a nuclear reactor and now he's 10 stories tall. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. What? So do you what's your favorite? What is your favorite one? So I I mean, I always found the Spider-Man one to be kind of fascinating in terms yeah. of like, you know, the radioactive spider bites Peter Parker, turns him into um, Spider-Man. And what's interesting is about those early comic books, those early Spider-Man comic books. He doesn't he's not actually much of a hero. He's kind of an asshole. <laughs> he sucks. Um, <laughs> yeah, he really does suck. So it's sort of this. I don't know. I always found it sort of be this this kind of allegory of like you have these amazing powers and you choose not to use them for good. You choose to use them for your own gain or benefit or to get yourself out of trouble, but not really for the benefit of mankind. So I always thought that was kind of a telling little little story um, With great power comes great responsibility. right exactly but what's funny yeah. is so i did a little bit of research into like the comic book industry post uh world war ii and you know this mm. was really one of the best ways to reach people at that time and so the government actually created a whole bunch of different comic books or they got involved with a bunch of different comic books to try and get the message out to people about how nuclear worked. And there was a comic book that came out in the 1950s. The foreword was written by General Leslie Groves, who had been, you know, the, the, the head of the Manhattan Project on the military side. And he writes this foreword for this comic called Blondie and Dagwood Split the Atom. Oh my God. And it's based on the Blondie cartoons. And they basically like shrink down to the size of an electron and like go and explore the atom. And it's actually pretty awesome uh i mean it's dated and the science isn't totally accurate but you're like wow that's kind of a cool way to try and reach people um, that's amazing yeah and there were all these other non-fiction comic books which you probably won't be surprised to hear that they didn't do particularly well because americans ultimately want action adventure epic stories and not just facts and figures um sure. but then so the comic book industry sort of pivots and like creates all these atomic heroes like adam man and um and that's Adam Mann, M-A-N-N. -N. And then he, I can't remember exactly what is the 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 moment that he becomes atomic, but he comes becomes atomic man. So anyway, a little play no, on yeah, words well, there. Like, well, yeah. the Hulk, right? The Hulk gets hit with gamma radiation and right. instead of him, you know, burning and melting from the inside. Totally. But the problem <laughs> was- super those, strong and green. Yeah, those initial comic book people- they were just the 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 comic book people were just trying to capitalize on like the newfound fascination with the atom. And there was no real storyline to these. So they they failed. And it wasn't until you get like Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Hulk, like that's when the idea of mutation and radiation becomes like a story, a way to move the story forward. And it doesn't become like just the thing itself. And it's this idea that mutation can actually do something cool. And yeah. it's not just necessarily a horrible horrible thing but i would like to point out with the hulk how many phds did that dude have seven and he was like i'm gonna go stand in this weird machine and let it bombard me with gamma rays that's cool it's complete insanity yeah, yeah it's you're just like, maybe ridiculous. you should have gotten an eighth phd and you would have known better well we it's funny we were just i i, I was just talking about those old comic book heroes like because you know Obviously, Marvel's had a crazy resurgence in the last like 20 years and in the <laughs> movies and everything else and whatever. Yeah. But it's like, you know, some some characters like the Hulk, you're like, OK, that guy, that power would never happen. But growing super strong and, you know, being able to stay smart after you, I guess, go through your like angsty Hulk phase. That seems kind of cool. But like, do you did you see Daredevil? No, I have okay, to confess, so, I haven't watched a lot of the Marvel well, so movies. It's, it, but just hilarious to me. Daredevil's only power is that he's not actually blind. Oh, which doesn't seem like much of a power. Wait, right? Like, was it's he? very strange. Is so he's not blind, but he pretends he's blind. So he's blind, but then his power is that he can see, even though he's blind. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's ridiculous, right? It's insanity. Okay. Anyways. I like Dare. I like Daredevil personally, okay. but I'm always I've always been like that. Come on. And then he's like, <laughs> he just kind of trains to be like powerful martial artists and everything else. So you can hear stuff really well. And right. it's it's wacky. Anyways, whatever. Um, all right. Going on your last point, 
Well, I'm going to kind of continue from your last point about the radiation being giving powers to people and whatever. Okay, so an interesting thing about an interesting thing about what happened to science and public science, especially too, and the public's understanding of science after kind of the nuclear age, I guess, and dropping of the atomic bombs, you see in the sort of pre World War II era in sort of kind of circles like theosophy and mind reading and sort of occultish stuff. They actually use radiation as a as a proof almost of the stuff that they've been saying, right? Because it's this it's this unseen physical force that we had we did not know anything about, and yet it's able mm-hmm. to do such horrible, amazing things. It seemed like magic. Exactly. It seems like magic. And so they there's actually a book called we're, we're reading it actually for an upcoming series here. There's a book called Thought Forms, and it, it actually was very, a very influential uh, book on art and abstract expressionism, especially in like abstract art and modern art, where they talk about, you know, well, we're limited to our we're only limited to our physical senses. And yet we know from things like X-rays and gamma radiation and, and all these are these tests that there are unseen forces that still affect the world around us. And so why couldn't it be that you are, you know, psychic powers are just another part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we don't understand mm-hmm. or, you know, it's like a move away almost from materialism and physicalism, but coming from a very like nuclear, nuclear energy is literally treating atoms as bowling balls hitting off of each other right it's the most it's the most materialist science you can almost get so it's an interesting shift and i'm wondering i guess i'm wondering with some of those scientists that were doing that kind of work on the earlier nuclear um on earlier nuclear projects a lot of them had very interesting kind of spiritual philosophical viewpoints. Do you, do you have a favorite scientist that was working at that time or a, I don't know, a favorite viewpoint that they had? You know, I'm not as familiar with that early stuff. I kind of started really picking up the thread on the history sort of in the 1930s. And it was mostly with Enrico Fermi and the stuff that he was doing Got in it. Chicago. So I can't speak to that as much as some of the, as some of the other stuff, but you know, to your point, like, where people take this and they're thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe this is just an extension of the physical universe that we can't see. The point was, is they were able to prove out some of this other stuff using science and using the scientific mm-hmm. method and some of these other things like ESP, psychic powers, all that, that never, were, we, as far as I know, still have not proven that out. So I think that that's why, you know, you kind of has to keep calling those ideas into question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, that's where we're going to pick up after this break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we're back with Laura Krantz, a host of Wild Thing Podcast, a very, very cool show, touching on really deep history into things like Bigfoot. You did a series on uh, UFOs or what we now call UAP, and then this latest series on nuclear energy and kind of the nuclear age. So I got to. So Bigfoot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you believe in Bigfoot? I'm not answering that question. You have to listen to the first season. All right. That's good. That's good for (laughs) listeners there. See that? Oh, man, that's the kind of podcast skill we got. Marie, when you're listening back to this, we got to get good at that stuff, man. Let's go. All right. So one of the interesting things I think about these topics of 
I call them near science or sort of because they're just on the edge. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Bigfoot. It, like Bigfoot hunting is such a. It's such a funny thing for me because. You have figures like, say, Melba Ketchum. Oh, or yeah. These other people who, you know, it reminds me of like when I was a kid, I told a friend that I was actually in the Power Rangers and like the lie got so big, right? That it, you know, it was like, well, if you're part of the Power Rangers, then show me your sword. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, and then you can't, and the, the lie kind of falls away. And that's what happens to these figures again and again, right? You know, yeah. well, show me the DNA. And then she's like, no, but here's a picture of a guy in a Chewbacca, you know, mask. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Super wonderful. What, where do you think? the public's interest in those things comes from or what, what drives somebody to hunt for Bigfoot every weekend? I think there are a lot of reasons, honestly. And that's actually one of the things I explore in that series. Um, you know, one of the big things is people just like being outside and being out in the woods <laughs> and looking for sure. Bigfoot gives them an excuse to do that. And I can't tell you how many people I met who are like, yeah, I'm going squatching, which is basically I'm going for a hike or I'm going camping or I'm just going to, you know, go bird watching. But if I happen to see a Sasquatch, great. Um, it's people who really enjoy the outdoors. And I don't see that there's anything particularly problematic with that at all. Um, the other thing that I heard is, you know, a lot of people saw this as kind of a symbol of hope. It's like if something like Bigfoot can exist out there in the world, it means that the world is still wild enough, still unpaved and unmapped and unpruned. Um, that you can have these kinds of creatures that are still out there. And honestly, that resonates with me because I would rather live in a world where something like Bigfoot could exist than live in a world where we are absolutely definitively sure that nothing like that could ever be out there ever again. You know, that kind of breaks your heart a little bit. Like you want to know that there are wild spaces out there and things that you can't even imagine. Um, so those were a couple of the reasons. A few other people saw it as sort of an ecology thing. It's like if we could prove that Bigfoot existed, then we could protect these forests, you know, from being logged. Then they brought up the the example of the spotted owl back in the 1990s and how that shut down logging in the old growth forests in Washington. And they were like, if they did that for the owl, imagine what they would do for Bigfoot. Um, <laughs> and then I think probably the reason Grover, you know, my grandfather's cousin and the genesis for this whole podcast, I think the reason he was looking is because he was an anthropologist and he found the idea of some sort of distant hominid relative out there still lurking in the woods to be like an unparalleled scientific opportunity. Like here was Mm -hmm. a chance to potentially find a specimen of something that we were distantly related to and that could give us a glimpse of our evolutionary past. And I think that that was one of the big reasons that he kept looking and hoping. So you're so, okay. You said a lot there that I want to respond to for sure. (laughs) I totally agree with you though. Like wanting the world to be magical. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course you know, we, we hear, I hear that a lot. I should say not Marie because Marie is smart and stays off of Twitter, but I get that a lot from people who really believe in like UFOs or whatever. They'll ask, you know, well, but why are you even involved in this? It's like, man, I wish there were aliens. That's that would be awesome. It would be so cool if there were aliens. Mm-hmm. But show me the evidence, right? I'm not going to buy a whatever. Anyways, but we had a I had a woman. So I got um the first ever like UFO in-person event I went to was a MUFON meeting in Minnesota. OK. And I went there and there was a really nice woman there who you know, I was kind of looking around and she was like, oh, are you new? And she was sort of older. I think she was probably in her 70s or 80s. And, you know, we got it, we got it talking and I was like, well, what you know, what brings you here? Like, why are you why are you at this thing? And she said, I just like I just like looking at all the weirdos <laughs> and I'll, I'll never forget it. I was like, oh, my God, this is this lady's the best. <laughs> but the the idea, I think, of because we've you know, I've gotten to be I've, I've been very lucky i would say in my kind of life i guess so far and getting to meet with people like you know um uh, like avi Loeb and um you know a lot of the ufo people and whatever and getting there i think for all of them the underlying drive is the one that you just said right of this like it's 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 ambition and curiosity kind of mixed together mm-hmm. you know this is 
this is our ability to go to something that no one has ever understood before. And if, if, if this is true, if this is true and we find out evidence of it, we will be the most important scientists of the last 200 years. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, mean, it's, it's, it's such an interesting, um, it's like the carrot that's or the, the dollar bill that's just out of reach, right? Mm-hmm. And they keep reeling it in. Mm-hmm. You're so, so close. <sighs> yeah, I, I would say that there there's some truth to that. Like, I'm sure that there are, de- I mean, I know that there are people who are looking for sort of academic um, validation or, you know, to prove that they were right. I'm sure Grover would have been more than happy to have found a Sasquatch and been able to throw that back in the faces of the people who had made fun of him. Um, sure. No, absolutely. But I think another part of it, and this is this is more for the amateurs, I think, and maybe even for kids to some degree, is like there's an element of like, it's a question. It's a legitimate question to have. Let's explore it using the scientific tools we have available and see what we come mm-hmm. up with. Like, where does your curiosity take you? And how can you use the tools that science provides to come up with an answer? And, you know, there there's something to be said, even though, you know, this question has been asked, I don't know how many times over the course of the past 60, 70 years. Um, it's one that continues to fascinate people. And in some ways, it's their it's the their gateway. It's their gateway into exploring the natural world. It's their gateway into science um, and it's their gateway into the great outdoors. And so I think as long as it stays like that and doesn't become obsessive to the point where, you know, you're hurting family or you're squandering all of your money on um, plaster cast kits for (laughs) getting your footprints lined up. And you're also continuing to go at it from like a reasoned perspective. I think that's okay. Totally. No, totally. We, a question we get a lot from listeners and I think even from people who are believers, but are, I think a little, a little shy or maybe even a little afraid of saying that they believe in this sort of stuff or Mm -hmm. or are interested in it is, you know, is it okay? Like, like, does it, you know, I think in the, in the modern age where some pseudoscience or just some conspiratorial thinking or whatever, and not that necessarily, again, all, those things have negative connotations to them. Yes. Right. So it's why I kind of prefer to say almost like fringe and even fringe is a bit of a connotation, but like, let's say, let's say emerging sciences, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> um, or even just modern folklore or whatever you want to call these stories. In a world where things like, you know, anti-vaccination belief and, um, you know, just conspiracy theory seems to have a really real negative effect on the world around them. Is it okay for people to believe in Bigfoot or in UFOs or or whatever, or even to, you know, I mean, UFO belief has gotten now Congress to like have hearings. And you know what right. I mean? Yeah. Is that is that okay? And I think, like you said, it's it's a matter of degrees, right? I mean, yes. I, I know for me, Bigfoot, the X Files, UFOs, those things are what got me into science. So. I think it's all about the way you frame it. And the Bigfoot people, Squatchers, I don't, what, what do they call Do they call them those Squatchers? Yeah, they totally do. Squ- Squatchers, okay, cool. You know, I, I think really, you know, that's a super, I don't know, it just seems super cool. I'd love to go on a Bigfoot hunt or a Bigfoot watch. You don't want to hunt them. Yeah, you know, a stakeout. Stakeout, <laughs> right, right, right. Super cool, yeah. Yeah, and so you know, they're, they're right. There's like sort of, some parallel, you know, you everyone kind of goes in with like, is Bigfoot real? And then they can kind of diverge into I'm going to look at look for Bigfoot and think about Bigfoot in terms of science. And then there are people who say, I didn't find Bigfoot, so Bigfoot must be invisible. And it sort of yes. starts to extend. And I can, you know, I worried about this a little bit with both the first season and the second season because there are a lot of conspiracy theories around these. And these especially aliens and Bigfoot and government cover-ups and all that, like these are seen as sort of gateways into bigger more QAnon type of Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories. And I I definitely didn't want to encourage people to be like, you know, question 
everything. And the, uh, you know, the rich elites are definitely kidnapping children and draining the adrenaline out of their blood. Like, you know, they're, they're, it's be open-minded, but not so open-minded. Your brains fall out. Like I was just going to say that, Yeah, (laughs) but that's a hard line to try and describe to people. So, um, it's really hard. I've had conversations with family and with friends who are very nice and relatively intelligent people. And they have legitimate, they have questions about this stuff because it's everywhere and they see it. And so they wonder, well, is there something going on that I should be more concerned about. And I don't know, I haven't figured out a good way to try and explain, like, how do you differentiate between what's good information and what is leading you down the primrose path? Yeah, it's really hard. And I think, but I think like you said, or you, you sort of hinted at it, I guess. And this is something that, this is something that I've at least, I, I believe it's why we started our show is the belief that, you know, the best way to teach somebody about how to do good science or good, how to be rational, how to be uh, curious, but not so curious that you just start to go down a rabbit hole kind Mm -hmm. of of infinite disbelief. Yeah. Is by looking at stories like this and seeing where the lines start to get a little bit weird, Mm -hmm. you know? So like you said, right, like the idea of, of Bigfoot existing out there, Super interesting. It has a lot of positive effects, I would say. I'm sure for the people that go out there and do these investigations, it probably, you know, creates a great sense of community. I'm sure it's brought families together. Like it's there's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah. And like you said, though, the but there's definitely a point where it starts going from. This is an interesting thing to, you know, Bigfoot is a part of a race of lost giants who built the pyramids and the Pope is covering that up. Ooh, I didn't know right, that, like that one. Is that one of the theories? Know, it, I hadn't heard that one. That is, that is uh, not that the Pope in particular, but yeah, like, um, so especially in, especially in sort of American pseudo archeology, span like kind of Mormon archeology, span mm-hmm. the belief of giants having built all of these old megalithic structures is like a hugely popular one. And one of the explanations for, well, where did the giants go is, Giants didn't go anywhere. They're just Bigfoot. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's crazy. That's what I'm saying, though. It becomes like a, it's it's like a, you know, it's it's a mishmash, right? It right. all just becomes one big conspiracy theory. They take folklore um, as truth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is, which is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, for for your investigation on. So we talked about Bigfoot. Yep. Now I got UFOs. Right. What do you think about these recent hearings? So what's your what's your take? What's your feel? Yeah. So the second season was actually about the search for extraterrestrial life, of which UFOs is only sort of a a sliver of it. Um, In terms of the recent hearings, I'm kind of like, I didn't hear anything I knew. I didn't hear anything that really changed my mind on these things. Um, You know, what I think is great is that the military has now provided an outlet for people to report things that they can't explain. Because for a while it was like, you didn't talk about seeing weird stuff because if you did, you were going to get, you know, they were going to ground you. They were going to uh, discharge you. Um, people didn't want to hear you talking about UFOs or UAPs. So the yeah. fact that there's now a reporting process, I think that that's really important. I also think that there's probably a lot of technology out there that, we aren't familiar with and that the pilots flying some of these planes aren't familiar with, and then they are coming across it. And there are reasonable explanations for a lot of it, but I have a hard time thinking that aliens are coming to earth Mm. Um, simply because I just, I, 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 first of all, space is huge. I mean, just, enormous and that was something that really the second season i learned like just how much space and time and distance we are talking about when we're talking about moving through it um second you know if aliens are coming to earth why is the evidence so uh, sort of un it's it's so ambiguous um and I think it just kind of keeps coming back to those two things. It's like we don't we don't even have proof that there is life on any other planet, not even microbial life. We can't we have found right. no evidence of it. So it's very hard for me to make the leap from no life anywhere that we have discovered to aliens are coming to Earth. See, but the challenge, I think, is 
that that's exactly what the lizards would want you to say. I know I've been brainwashed. I'm telling you, this is rough. <laughs> this is rough stuff right now. You're yeah. here first, folks. But, you know, this goes back to that <laughs> earlier question of like, yeah, ask questions, investigate it, look into it, but don't make any assumptions. You know, yes. let's see what we can find out. Let's see what our, you know, I realize. And also science is a moving target. Science is not set in stone. So as we get better with technology, as we have instruments that can detect different types of matter or different types of light waves, we may come to different conclusions, but based on what we have now and what we know now, there is no real solid evidence that aliens are coming to Earth and buzzing our planes. It's like, what, what, right. are, what else are they doing here? Right. I mean, they, they're well, not here for our technology because if they can already do this, then they don't need anything from us. Right. Who cares? Yeah. Why come here at all? Right. Well, it's interesting. There is a really so one of the most prevalent i guess i would say parts of modern day ufo folklore that again ufos is funny because you know bigfoot is bigfoot has sort of stayed not static because like belief about bigfoot has kind of emerged and changed and everything else but big like the overall bigfoot story has basically been there might be this creature out in the wild you know, right. That's that's been the story. And it's kind of it's it's a relatively simple story and it's easy to get your head around and why it might be and everything else. The UFO and kind of the look or the search for extraterrestrial life of any sort. It is it is evolved and changed and morphed and kind of re eaten itself and morphed again and morphed again over time. And mm-hmm. so but one of the interesting, I think, stories that keeps reemerging is again, and it ties into your third season, I think, very, very interestingly, is this idea that. One of the reasons aliens are coming here is because they're trying to stop us from using nuclear energy. Or from using nuclear weapons. So they're not doing a very good job of that either. No, it's a terrible job, right? But like one of the major um, one of the major kind of cornerstones of modern military UFO mythology Mm -hmm. is this idea that in the 80s, a UFO disrupted a nuclear bunker someplace and where the bunker is changes all the time and who it, who saw it changes all the time and what they actually did changes all the time and everything else. But that mythology, that kind of story keeps, keeps on keeping on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, this was in the movies in like the 1950s and sixties too. Like a lot of the science fiction movies of the time were basically about aliens. Now that they've seen what we have done with the atomic bomb say that we are not responsible enough to have this technology. So they come to earth to, you know, warn us or destroy us or try and save us from ourselves. Like this is a very, this is a long held idea, basically since like the late 1940s. Yeah, it's well, it, and it brings me to my question, I guess, for you, which is in your look at these, at these topics and these stories and, and everything else, have you, what do you, how do you think the best way if you if you even have a best way or you, you have an opinion on this is of trying to get trying to teach somebody scientific discourse or kind of rational investigation right the process itself like have you found a good way to do that or a way to i, I don't know have you seen anything that's worked i guess uh i have no idea what's working honestly but You know, I'm I'm of the opinion that my goal here is not to make fun of anyone. Like most of the people who are asking these questions are asking them out of out of real curiosity and a real like sense of wonder or wanting to know. So I never want to make fun of people. And what I want to do is explain the science behind some of this stuff in as like as straightforward and simple a way as possible. And I realize I simplify a lot of it down to a point where probably nuclear scientists are rolling their eyes and being like, "She's missed very important points here," but. What I want people to do is feel like they can understand this stuff, at least at a basic level, so that when they read about it or hear about it, they have a foundation for it. And I think that that is probably the most important part of the discourse, is if people Mm -hmm. don't have that foundation, if they don't have the basics upon which to build, then they can go any which way with the science because they don't fully understand it. So that's kind of how I interpret this stuff and think about it and try to present it. Um, the other factor in this is that Wild Thing, all three seasons are now going to be a nonfiction middle grade book series. Um, the first one comes out in October, so I'm trying to get them while they're young. That is super exciting, though. I know, I'm super excited about it. Oh my goodness, I would have loved books like that as a kid. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. 
So, so cool. Yeah, it's just taking kind of fun stories and interesting ideas and then putting those into a book along with like the real science that is that sort of permeates this world or, or intertwines with it. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. So, so cool. Well, I, I can't think of a better note to end the episode on. I think that's so cool. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so listeners, again, thank you so much for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I, I really uh, Laura Krantz is the host of Wild Thing Podcast. Check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. Check out the books when they come out. I'm really, I cannot wait to get my own copies. It sounds like they're going to be so much fun and so cool. Um, Laura, thanks for coming on the show. Anything else you wanted to tell listeners? Anything else you wanted to have them check out? No, this is great. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a really fun and very wide-ranging conversation. They always are here. We have a very hard time keeping on topic. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Listeners, as always, thank you for listening to the show, and we'll be back next week. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. We love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.